Hi friends, welcome back to another episode of the Development by David podcast and I'm so excited to share this episode with you. It's one I've been looking forward to and it's with my first real role model, Sir Tom Hunter. Sir Tom Hunter is uh, a philanthropist and was once Scotland's richest man. He's also Scotland's first homegrown billionaire. But in fact, he asked to be removed from the Sunday Times rich list because he aims to give away most of his wealth before he passes. Tom came to my school when I was the meagre age of 14 and was the first real representation of an entrepreneur and philanthropist, especially one close to home. In this episode, we speak about Sir Tom Hunter's origin story from the mining town of New Cumnock in Scotland. Tom's lessons from scaling a business from market stalls to millions of pounds. What it takes to become a billionaire and what that news feels like. Tom's most extravagant purchase, my term, the millionaire's menopause, and Tom's reflection on that. How Tom found a new purpose after selling and exiting his business, and what it's like to partner with Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Leonardo DiCaprio, and George Clooney. Tom is such an idol of mine, so this episode was so full circle. When I started the podcast, he was my dream guest, and we made it happen. I mean, you made it happen. I'm so appreciative of you, the listeners, for making my dreams come true every single week. Thank you for sticking around. You all mean the world to me. And just really quickly before we kick off, I want to remind you of a brand that I've been using every single day. That is Vibe, the meal replacement shake. You might remember Gordon Belch being on the podcast, one of their co-founders. It was such a well-played and well-received episode. I've been using Vibe every single day. It's such a quick and convenient breakfast that I have, and it's interlaced with such amazing um, nutrient profiles, but also nootropics. If you don't know what nootropic is, it's basically a cognitive enhancer. My mates, Gordon and Rory, have taken this company worldwide, both operating in Australia and the UK, and their mission is to provide world-class nutritional products that are convenient and affordable and given back to disadvantaged communities. You know my work in the social mobility landscape really aligns with this, so that's why I have partnered with them on the podcast. They've got a few flavours, but my favourite is the vanilla. I use it just for a quick and convenient breakfast in the morning. Provides me with all the nutrients I need to set me up for the day and keeps me full until lunch. I've been going back into the office most recently and you know what it's like getting up early at 7am trying to cook something, it's just hard work. Or you go out to the shops and spend five, six pounds on a coffee and a croissant that doesn't really fill you the same. This has been a godsend. So thank you everyone at Vibe for sending me your products. Um, you can get it for as little as £1.50 per meal and you can use code DMAC for 15% off whether on the UK or Australian website. You can find them at vibe.com.au or vibe.co.uk. Thanks team for supporting this episode. Sir Tom Hunter, welcome to the Development by David podcast. I can't believe I'm actually saying this. How are you? I'm great, David. How are you? I can't put into words the excitement I have, Sir Tom, that's for sure. And behave yourself. Come on, behave yourself. So that opening line is something that I thought I would never say. I've been inspired by you for over a decade. Um, I've had a few touch points with you. The first one is when you visited my school in maybe 2012, when I was around 14, um, where you shared your story. Um, it was the first time I could see someone so close to me in terms of geographical location do something that was extraordinary. And I realized that maybe one day I could too. I realized the power of a distant mentor um, and someone that not only garnered such success, but gave it back. Um, 
And then the second touch point was I was really lucky to attend Scottish Edge in 2019. And I saw you present alongside uh, Theo Petites and I saw what oh, it meant. Yeah. Okay. It was amazing. I, I saw what it meant for all the entrepreneurs to be affiliated with you in some way. And then just recently when I placed 30, in the, the 35 under 35 within the Business Insider, you retweeted that tweet. <laughs> and that meant the world to me. And I guess that sounds like a kind of self-aggrandizing kind of narcissistic way for me to like tag myself along with you. But I, I don't mean that at all. What I wanted to take You've from You've got me like, on, David. You've got the sale. You don't need to sell it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the reason I wanted to highlight that, Sir Tom, is because whenever I mention your name, people want to say, I, I knew him from the heyday. I knew him growing up where I sold him his first car or his first supercar. Lecturers and teachers talk about you as the hallmark of entrepreneurship in Scotland. When people think of business in Scotland, they think of you. The same way they do for Andy Murray in tennis, Alex Ferguson in management, and Sean Connery in, in acting. Okay, well, um, that's, that's kind of amazing, David. But I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that um, me coming to the school had a positive effect because um, I, don't, I don't visit schools as much as I used to, and maybe I should re-engage because... It's always hard when you visit a school because I'm I'm trying to connect with people and am I am I relevant to them anymore? You know, my stories comes from um, a long way ago, but I'm I'm really heartened to to hear that it influenced you in a positive way. So I'm going to relook and see if I shouldn't re-engage with a few more schools. So thank you for sharing that. When you hear the lectures and teachers use you as the example for entrepreneurship in Scotland how does that make you feel does it feel like a, a huge responsibility yeah well I mean I think where I feel the responsibility David is um, and the reason that I do the public speaking etc especially to schools is I'm trying to say look I was just like you I'm, I'm no different to you I had hard work, I had luck, I had a mentor in my dad who was in business, but, you know, I'm no different. I'm from the same sort of place, um, same sort of working class upbringing, and if I can do it, you can do it. And that's the responsibility is actually to get that message out there. And um, if, if it only touches even one which is obviously yourself, then that would be good. But if we can do it all over Scotland and the UK, then that would make me really happy. It would make me really happy too, Sir Tom. And that's the premise of this podcast is showcasing the highs and lows of all different routes. Because people like me, my background, I had amazing mentors being my cousins who were joiners and labourers, but that wasn't a career that I could excel at. And until you came into my school and... And, and shared that amazing quote around being a, a radiator, not a drain. I could I could see beyond what what my family were doing. It gave me something to point to shoot. And, and I'm so glad that you came on this podcast so we can share it far and wide. No um, problem. No problem. I feel like we're kind of teasing the listener. I, I don't typically do an uh, introduction to a guest because I love to see how guests present themselves. I promise you I'm not being lazy. 
<laughs> if I ask you who is Sir Tom Hunter today in 2022, how would you answer that? <laughs> who am I today? Today. Wow. Um, well, I suppose I am a philanthropist. I am a dad. I'm a husband. And um, I'm also still trying to make money and because um, I want to give it away. Um, so these are all things which um, which I do. Does that define me? Maybe, maybe not. I haven't really thought about it, David, to be honest with you, but um, that'll do for now. I love it. And the true development by David Stell, let's take it back to the formative years. Talk to me about Bonnie New Cumnock, where it all started. What did home look like? Yeah, so New Cumnock, for those of the listeners who don't know, is, is a very small mining community in South Ayrshire and um, East Ayrshire, actually. And um, population when I was growing up was maybe about 6,000, but I would say 90% of the male employment was down the pit in deep coal mining. And my dad was a local grocer. So I suppose in that sort of um, village, we would be seen as maybe middle class coming up there because my dad had his own business. And um, But my, my dad was and is my hero. And I used to love going into the shop and learning how to buy and sell right from maybe six years old, you know. And... Um, that was my real education. You know, business was talked about around the dinner table at home and I would be in the shop wherever I could and trying to help my dad do do what he was doing. So that's what Newcomnock was then. But the turning point, and I was, I was at a conference um, last weekend for the Founders Forum, and this was bringing founders of mainly tech companies from all over the world to Glen Eagles. And Sequoia, who's one of the biggest venture firms in the world, um, they were talking about crucible moments. I have, I've never heard that term before, but these are the crucible moments in a founder's progression. And I suppose one of my crucible moments was when the miners' strike happened and then the mines all closed. And I watched my dad, who wasn't as my hero, think he was a failure and he had to close the shop and get out because there wasn't enough business in Newcomnock. And um, so that had a big effect on me. And I suppose, but if it hadn't happened, David, because my dad was too young to retire and he would, he'd a big work ethic, my dad. And um, so he put a small amount of money in with another local entrepreneur from Cumnock, David Hammond, and they sold shoes and slippers around about market stalls. And, this was where I got the idea. So it's funny how things work out in that through something which was a traumatic event in my family and was happening to my dad, but something amazing came out of it um, because if the shop had continued on, maybe I wouldn't have discovered trainers. Who knows? But it's, it's funny how, I mean, that's complete luck that's happenstance i didn't do anything to make that happen that was just what was presented to me i when i read the autobiographies of many entrepreneurs that I admire it seems like that is a commonality 
where there was a key pivotal point where they had to adapt and make a change. Given that you came from this industrial town and, and you kind of denote your, your kind of role model to your, your dad, you didn't have internet or podcast to see other entrepreneurs doing stuff. No. Did you know within those formative years that you could be a moonshot thinker? What what around you really inspired that that ethic and that mindset? Yeah, um, I was always interested and I was always curious, David. I didn't think in terms of moonshot thinking. I mean, this one didn't come into my um, stratosphere, I suppose. But um, I was always interested in successful people. And I read books. I still read books. I've got two books in the go all the time. And most successful people I know are avid readers. And um, so I read stories of successful people. I was really inspired by them. I still am. I still am. And um, my dad encouraged me to do that. And we would talk about people that he knew and people that he admired. And, you know, this was just... This was a real education, I would I would call it, David. So that's what was that was something which was in me, and it's a question that I really um, try to get an answer to: nature or nurture? What is what is the thing? Because I want to encourage more entrepreneurs in Scotland than the UK. I want to encourage more entrepreneurial thinking. And um, how do we do it? Do we need to get into schools earlier? Do we need to? Um, change the way we, we we look at things and believe it or not you're now a role model and you probably don't think of it in those terms but but you're a role model and you should be getting into schools and communicating i know you communicate through your podcast which probably gets to a lot more people than you can get to going into schools to talk but you're obviously clever than me so you're doing it your way <laughs> no i i think it's such a important point that whole if you can see it you can you can be it um unfortunately there's uh, fortunately and unfortunately there's some amazing charities out there that support people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds but they typically touch the lives of 16 year olds who are about to embark on university apprenticeships but there's people who are 12 13 year old the same age i was when i was introduced to you who don't yet know they can be aspiring and getting them at that level Understanding where their attention is at that age, whether it's in school or on social media, intercepting that and talking about business like you would over the dinner table, I think is something that's really, really important. And I know you're such a proponent of micro tycro, the um, primary school and secondary school of entrepreneur program that teaches yeah. um, young people how to be resourceful with one pound. Um, I think that's a great scheme. And you speak about how the like the business chat around dinner was your education i know you went to university and studied at strathclyde what was more important your technical education at university or your practical education through working with your dad yeah jim, jim mcdonald the principal at strathclyde hates when i answer this question because i really believe in learning by doing and i was a bit of a rebel i, I hope i'm still a rebel but when I was at university and lecturers would say, I would say, right, well, what have you done? And they would say, well, what, what? I said, have you started a business? Have you grown a business? Or have you just read a book about it? 
and you're regurgitating it out now. So obviously, I was very popular amongst the lecturers. <laughs> and um, so I think you can tell my answer is learn by doing. And I really encourage people like yourself, anybody, just to give something a try. Don't, don't wait. The amount of people are here, yes, Tom, but I'm just, if only that happened, I could do this. No, no. And if, if only I can get the last sale of my spreadsheet, no. Have you spoke to a customer? Uh, no, but I need to get my business plan. Have you spoke to a customer? Pick up the phone. <laughs> um, get a customer. Get the feedback. Don't wait. So learn by doing. And even if what you learn is that didn't work, uh, then you've learned something. Don't, don't, it's, it's something we're bad at in Scotland. We need the confidence to try and fail. Failing, you know, it's a problem in Scotland. And it shouldn't be because it's one step closer to actually getting the success. So learn by doing, David, is my number one. I love that. I think, especially in Scotland, and I see it amongst my peer group, I'm 24 years old, people don't know what they want to do, or they may have a rough idea, but they just float like they're in a body of water waiting for someone to rescue them, waiting for the stars align to align or for the perfect opportunity to, to go past them. But that's not the way you succeed. You just pick a direction and start swimming. And if you fail, well, that's information that you can use for your next move. I love how, um, I love how you brought that to life, Tom. So let's talk about your first interaction with um, your dad and selling, selling trainers. When did you first join forces with him? And was that at Urban, Urban Indoor Market? Is that where that started? So what, what actually happened was he, was he was selling shoes and trainers and market stalls, Urban Indoor Market, Air Indoor Market. And his business partner was doing it. So they were... So I was at university and I would come home at the weekends and I would look at the sales returns from the stalls and I and I saw that um, trainers were a big part of this. So I was kind of, my mind was going, but I was still at university and I was thinking, right, what am I going to do? And um, I finished at Strathclyde University and I, only, I wanted to get out as quick as I could. I really only went to university to please my dad, if I'm honest. He wanted me to go. I didn't really want to go. But anyway, I went and I got my degree and that was fine. Um, I then attended a course at Glasgow University, which was for unemployed graduates who wanted to start their own business. And that was really good because that was hands-on. I learned about cash flow. I learned how to read a balance sheet. And I was, I was put out to a firm. Um, the funny story about that was... The university put you in, and I, and I went to this little business in the West End of Glasgow called the West End Times. It was a newspaper. And I went there, and it was a kind of sleepy old place. And I went in, and I thought, hmm, I'm just not getting this right. So it was the time of free newspapers. So I did this analysis of the paid-for adverts versus the cover price. And I thought, I should really just give this away, and then they can charge more for the advertising. This is, they should really go on with this. And I found out the owner was Sir Hugh Fraser. And I wrote to him and I said, I'm in at the West End Times. I don't think your current management really know what they're doing. 
I was quite arrogant. And um, can I buy this? And I was hauled in by the university and they said, Tom, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just doing what I'm doing. And they said, that company was good enough to accept students here. You've now went in and told the owner the management's rubbish and you want to buy it. So I got kicked off the course and I never bought the West End Times, just as well. <laughs> <laughs> what a story. So yeah. how did that transpire into... Um, All right, sorry, yes. Trainers? So um, <laughs> the next firm I got put to, because they said, look, Tom, you've got to leave there and you should really go off the course, but we, we grudgingly quite like your chutzpah. And um, I said, I know. Well, I'm not doing anything wrong. And um, so, they, so they put me to this firm in East Kilbride that was selling industrial toasting machines. <laughs> <laughs> they were lovely people, but they hadn't did their R&D. So my job was to go to pubs who'd paid for these industrial toasting machines that were not working and take them back. And they always said, right, son, we want our money back. I said, well, I'm not going to do the money. I'm just taking the machine back. So anyway, what what they had was a huge warehouse in East Kilbride. So I thought, I think I can sell trainers and um, I could store them in, in this big warehouse of these guys. So I made up a letterhead and I wrote to two existing retailers who had stores on the high street. There was no internet in these days. And um, I said I was a fast-expanding footwear company which I wasn't. And I noticed space in their store for my shoes, which I didn't have. And um, could we talk about it? And I had chosen a jeans store because I thought jeans and trainers went. Who knew? And um, the, the company called Keen Jeans down in North Shields, Tyne and Weir, said, yeah, come and see us. So I borrowed my dad's car, his suit, his shirt, his tie, and I drove down to um, North Shields. And they said, we love this. Jeans and trainers, makes sense. Um, can you open in Leeds, Aberdeen and Sunderland next week? And I said, well, my shop fitting teams are flat out. I'll need to come back to you. Very busy. Drove back up the road, spoke to my dad and said, look, I don't know what I'm doing. I've got no shoes. I've got no money. I, what am I going to do? So anyway, we we sat down. My dad loaned me £5,000. And I borrowed 5000 from Royal Bank of Scotland. And I went and bought, bought the shoes and put them in the stores. And it just was lucky that it took off, David. So that's how I got into it. It was complete and utter luck. And when I read old interviews of you, that was maybe your first big lesson too, Keen Jeans, because that ultimately kind of went under the rug and um, yeah, it, didn't it? I mean, that was the only way I, the only outlet I had for the shoes at the time. And um, I, I naively thought, this is great. They want to do more stores, so I'll just do it. And the way it was supposed to work was they staffed it, they sold it, the money went through the until they would deduct a commission and send me the balance, but they weren't doing this. And I'd, so I had very good sales, but very poor cash flow. 
which is still my number one lesson for businesses today is cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. And um, so it, this was quite a big company. It was a PLC. It was on the stock market and it was owned by a gentleman called Joseph Gould. And he invited me down to Newcastle, and which was unheard of. I mean, I was a very small part of his empire. And he said, Tom, I hear you're doing well. I think you should change the way we do business. Why don't you bank the money and pay me the commission when you've got it? And at that point, he owed me about £36,000. And um, six weeks later, the business went bust. And he only owed me a couple of hundred pounds because obviously I hadn't been paying him. Um, I'd been keeping it against what he owed me. So if he hadn't taken a shine to me, and I had I had only met him once, um, I might not be sitting here today. And that was a big lesson. And that's testament to you as an entrepreneur, what he saw in you, your... Um your traits and how well you got on with him and how you, you built a rapport with him as a founder and an entrepreneur? I suppose so, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, I was just doing what I do. And, um, yeah, <laughs> thank, thank goodness. <laughs> so what came next after that moment? So that was good news, bad news. The good news was I hadn't lost 36 grand and I wasn't going bust. Um, the bad news was I didn't have any customers because he was my one and only customer, but it made me get off my backside and go and find new customers. And I found better stores who were paying me and it actually transformed my business. And it took me five years of doing that in someone else's store before I could have enough money to open my own store. So I was five years doing that. And then we got our first store in Paisley, 35A High Street, Paisley, only 300 square feet. I signed a 25-year um, lease personally, upward-only rent reviews every five years. Unbelievable. But I had nothing to lose. I, was, I stayed at home. I thought, yeah, where do I sign? No bother. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage anybody to sign a 25-year lease today, Dave, I'll tell you that. And... Um, that was my first store, and that's when it began to evolve. And then another piece of luck, because we only sold shoes at the time, someone, I was at a trade show, and someone said to me, have you heard of this thing called a shell suit? And I said, no. What's, what's a shell suit? He said, right, come here and see this, this shiny track suit. Mm -hmm. and I said, wow. He said, this is going to be big. I said, you sure? He said, guaranteed. Anyway, long story short, we became Europe's biggest seller of shell suits over the next, you know, 10 years. And um, so we moved into clothing and then we moved into fitness equipment. I went to America, so these big box retailers selling the whole gambit of sports and out-of-town locations. thought, I've got to do that in the UK. So we did that. And then everything just... Everything was going our way. I, I recruited a brilliant team run about me, really brilliant team. And um, then the chance came to buy Olympus Sport, um, which was the biggest in the UK. I was about number seven in the UK. They were number one, but they were losing 14 million a year. 
I was number seven, but I was making four million a year. And I had this crazy thought that I could buy them. And I, I went to see the chief exec and he basically treated me with disdain and said, look, you, I went back to Scotland. You don't really know what you're doing. And I said, well, you don't know what you're doing. You're losing 14 million. And um, so they managed by hook or by crook to, to buy this business, which was 10 times our size. And um, we learned by doing. If I'd known of all the stuff that I didn't know, I probably would never have done it. But you just get on with it. I've got a team of people who are brilliant. And we just go, yeah. I, I always remember the first night, the board of directors of this company, remember it was the biggest in the UK, but they were losing 14 million. And I, I sat with every one of them. Every one of them told me I'd bitten off more than I could chew. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And I said to my number two there and then, I said, what do you think we should do? And he said, well, we are, we are there. They're telling us we don't know what we're doing, but we're the ones making the money. So in the morning, I got them all in and I sacked a lot of them. <laughs> and I, it's a great phrase from Alex Ferguson. Um, I don't know what we're going to do without you, but we're going to give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't mind, I'm going to have my, my, my tea while I'm speaking to you. Is that all right, David? That's totally fine. <laughs> chicken, chicken and mash. <laughs> Thank you, darling. You know, you know what, Brilliant. And beans. Beans, <laughs> beans as well. I need, to, I need to make the most of my time because I've got more calls to make. So. I'm just appreciative of your time. You can have your tea, Sir Tom. Right. <laughs> so when did you realise that Sports Division became a runaway success. Was there a personal moment for you? I suppose, you know, going from one shop, two shops, three shops, then shell suits, then I suppose it took me about seven years in before I could see that this this has got real huge potential. The first five years, I didn't have time to think. I was too busy. I was on my own. I was just 18-hour days, seven days a week. I didn't have time to think. And then once I could employ a couple of people, I had time to step back to think about things. And um, that's basically, I think about seven years in, David. And when ultimately you sold it to JGB at the time, given your humble background in the coal mining town of Nekumnut, Given that you sold it for what, 20, 290 million? That mm -hmm. would have been your dad Campbell's and young Tom's dream. That would have been an absolute dream where you, where, where you would close your eyes and think of the biggest picture you can imagine. That would be their dream. When you were given that, I don't know if it was a real check or hypothetical check, but when you were given that transaction, were you met with elation or underwhelm? Was it what you imagined it would be? I was quite sad. Um, sounds crazy, but um, this was my baby. This was the only thing I had ever done. I I loved growing this business. I loved being the David versus Goliath. I loved taking on people said you can't do it. I loved proving people wrong. I had a great team of people, and it was all consuming. And then somebody comes along and says, I want to buy your baby. Okay, and 
I kind of knew that the jobs that we'd created here in Ayrshire, which needed jobs, were going to go down south. So I was up front about that. So I was, on the one hand, yes, I'd got a very large cheque. On the other hand, people were not happy with me because they were losing their jobs. So it was a real, it, it wasn't actually that, that happy. I remember reading in your 2007 Business Insider interview where you say, I was 37 and my business had been my whole life. <laughs> I had never worked for anybody but my dad. I didn't actually have that many skills and it was scary. It took me 2.5 years or two and a half years to learn what I wanted to do. And when I reflect on some of the other autobiographies that I've read or some of the other entrepreneurs on podcasts who have had similar trajectories, I don't know what to call the, 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 the term for this moment, but I hope you don't mind. I'll call it the millionaire's menopause, where working class <laughs> entrepreneurs reach a level, level of wealth um, through a sale and they don't know what's next and they redefine their purpose. What did you do within those two and a half years that allowed you to find yours? And what did that end up being? Yeah, so that was it. I was 37 years old, young family. I had nothing to do. So I knew this couldn't be the end. <laughs> there had to be something else. I had become interested in uh, Andrew Carnegie. Of course. I had visited Skibo Castle and I, had, I was in wonderment about Andrew Carnegie's story. You know, when I, when, I, when I speak in America, everybody there thinks Andrew Carnegie's American. And I said, no, 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 he's Scottish. Um, and... Um, became the richest man in the world from abject poverty. Absolute poverty. His family left in Fernland when he was eight because they couldn't make enough. They were weavers and they couldn't make enough money. And um, so what did I do? I basically educated myself. I went and I spoke to others who had been in a similar position, mainly in America. There was more role models there. And I knocked on the door of the Canadian Corporation of New York and I asked to see the president, who was a man called Vatan Gregorian. And um, I always remember the secretary saying, well, who are you? Have you got an appointment? And I said, well, I'm Tom from Scotland. And no, I don't have an appointment, but I've got time. And luckily, he didn't keep me waiting too long. And um, he, he basically challenged me. He said, well, look, Tom, this great wealth you've come across, it isn't really yours. You've got to learn to be a good ancestor. So I didn't really know what that meant. And um, I definitely thought he was mad because it was my money. I'd worked very hard for it. <laughs> and um, But anyway, over time, I kept going back to him. And he basically became my philanthropic mentor and he became a trustee of the, the Hunter Foundation. And um, through that, I guess... I found my purpose again, which was to continue making money, but to put it into our foundation. That's amazing. I noticed that Barton sadly passed away last he did. year. Yeah, he did. Um, Indeed, that was a sad time. I can totally imagine how that must have made you feel, Tom. But I'm sure he lives on within the values of the Hunter Foundation and, and through you, through what he taught you and the... Um, inspiration that he gave you at that moment 
And I, I, I'm a huge fan of Andrew Carnegie myself, and I know he has this very pertinent quote around, a man that dies rich dies disgraced. And then <laughs> when you came to my school, you said you don't want to be the richest man in the graveyard. Um, it's so, a huge effect on me. <laughs> uh, I can totally imagine. So what is the Hunter Foundation, for those who aren't aware of what amazing work you do? Yeah, so the Hunter Foundation is simply um, we are trying to make a positive difference. And we've got three pillars. One is to um, encourage and help entrepreneurs start and grow their business. And we do that in all sorts of ways. And we do that because we believe the best social policy ever written is a decent paid job. Who creates the jobs? Entrepreneurs. So if we can help more entrepreneurs start, grow their businesses, we can create more jobs, we can have better social fabric in the country. So that's number one. Number two then is we are trying to help with leadership. Um, One of the things we found was when we're trying to do things, if there was a good leader, things happened. If there were poor leadership, there was lots of reasons why it couldn't happen. And therefore, we've recently bought Blair Estate, quite close to here, and we're making it our global leadership centre. And this is where we bring people together and to talk about leadership so we can make better decisions in our country. And um, they, they come and the peer-to-peer support and learning is really the magic dust of how people um, find each other, how they support each other. So an example of that is entrepreneurs. We bring entrepreneurs together, and once they get to know each other, they'll say, oh, David, what did you do about that management incentive? Because I've got it wrong. Oh, here's what I did, and I, I got it wrong as well, but then I got it right. And just understanding an entrepreneur's role can be a very lonely role, so understanding that there, there are other weird people like yourself, that's quite important. And then actually having a support mechanism is really important. And the third strand of it all is education. And we decided how, how can we help education? So we are putting every single head teacher in Scotland through a leadership academy at Blair Estate with Columba 1400. We're about 1,200 teachers through already and we've got about another uh, 2,800 to go. Um, so that's what the Hunter Foundation is doing. It's truly remarkable and first of its kind in Scotland, that's for sure, Sir Tom. And <laughs> when, when I read all the amazing donations that you've also made through the Hunter Foundation, whether it's Band-Aid or um, in partnership with Bill Clinton or Children in Need or Comic Relief, your legacy through philanthropy has been hallmarked into existence for over a decade now. And <laughs> I, I reflect on you being in the Times, I think it's the Times Rich List, that labelled you as the first homegrown billionaire. Um, but you asked to be removed. Every I did. Year. Why? Why was that? Was it something because... to do with your, your values in philanthropy? Um, so I wanted to be removed. I, I didn't want to be on a list for how rich I was. That's crass in my opinion I wanted to be on a list about how you've used your wealth for the common good and 
because my wife and I had made a decision, we are signatories of the giving pledge, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett in America. So they encourage successful people to say, during your lifetime, you're going to give away at least half. I mean, we're going to give away more than that of your wealth. And um, therefore, I said, look, I should be on this list for my wealth. If you want to put me on the list for giving it away, then great. <laughs> so that was it. That's truly inspirational. I'm sure the listeners, when they close their eyes and think of I don't know, a billionaire, they think of some sort of malevolent figure. But <laughs> you have redefined that completely through what you do and, and the values that you have. And those statements such as not being the richest in the graveyard, I, I, I really look at you with inspiration. Um, and I, I mean, really mean that. I mean, mashing beans, well, David. I'll I'll be having that too in about fifteen <laughs> minutes. <laughs> so you've through your philanthropy and through the Hunter Foundation and some of the amazing initiatives that you've run over the last decade, you've partnered with some amazing individuals such as Bill Clinton, Obama, George Clooney, Leonardo DiCaprio. Out of these amazing celebrity guests that you're friends with, is there a particular one that stands out that aligns with your values or is just truly doing something incredible in this space? I think um, the most amazing time I had was um, I went with President Bill Clinton to Africa. I'd never been to Africa before and he invited me to go on a whistle-stop tour of Africa with him. The G8 was coming to Glen Eagles and Africa was high up Gordon Brown's agenda, Tony Blair's agenda. And um, he said, would you like to come? And I said, well, of course, I'd love to come. And I had the privilege of visiting seven countries in six days with him. And I would just be a fly in the wall, listening and learning and before we were in a private plane and before we would land, say it was Maputo and Mozambique, his chief of staff would come to him and say, Mr. President, we're going to meet the president here. His name is this. His wife's name is this. He's got three daughters. One's at Brown, one's at NYU, one's at um, Stanford. And here's the key things we want to get across. You want me to go over that again? Then he, Bill Clinton would say, no, we would land. The motorcade would go. I would just tuck in behind. He would then meet the president. Mr. President, how are you? Now, how's your wife? And, how, and his ability to make that person feel he was the most important person he was speaking to was just amazing. And he actually did it to me. And even though... I knew what he was doing. I was still impressed. He, he, he came and visited here in Ayrshire, our home in Ayrshire. And the minute he walked in, he said, Tom, where's your dad? Because somebody had sat with him and said, right, what's important to Tom, right? His dad, philanthropy, blah, blah. And I said, well, my dad's not very well, Mr. President. He said, right, well, is he, do you think he'll make it? And if he doesn't, why don't we jump in the car and I'll go to him? It's like, wow. <laughs> so that was an amazing education, David. It certainly was. But I mean, people like Barack Obama, when, when he came, you know, it, it, was, God, it, it was amazing as well. 
That's that, that's one thing I've truly recognised, and I think I read it in a gentleman called Dale Carnegie's book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And the greatest lesson I learned was that all humans cohesively possess the desire to feel important. And Tom, when you came on on, on the podcast before we hit record, you asked where I was, asked about my story, asked about why the podcast exists, and I was blushing like it was a girl flirting with me. I felt so important. <laughs> well. I don't do that for any other reason that I'm genuinely interested. I know, I know. So what does the day in the life of Sir Tom Hunter look like now when he's not having um, roast tatties, uh, roast <laughs> chicken and, and beans? What does, a day in, what does a day in the life look like? Well, it's very varied. I mean, the day I've been out at one of our charities at Centre Stage in Kilmarnock meeting with the new CEO and the founder, Fiona McKenzie, and the new chair, Willie Mackey, and just seeing how it's going. And then I've been back here and on Zoom calls, and I'll be on Zoom calls till 9 or 10 o'clock tonight. Um, tomorrow I'm up in Glasgow, again, meeting at Scottish Edge, which is a thing for, run by Evelyn MacDonald and really helps early-stage businesses get funding. So we're there, and then I'm over doing our, our own podcast, the Go Radio Business Show with Willie Hockey. So, yeah, every day is different, but every day is brilliant, you know? I can imagine. One of the key things that I love to share on this podcast, given it's so transparent in nature, I share the highs and the lows, being a billionaire must come with some extravagant purchases or experiences. What's the most extravagant um, item or experience that you've that, that you can bring to life? Yeah, I'm I'm not a billionaire anymore because I've been giving it away, and I also had a very interesting time in the last financial downturn when I lost hundreds of millions of pounds. <laughs> so it's not all been plain sailing, put it that way. But I guess the most extravagant purchase was a home in LA in Beverly Hills when we were doing a lot of business out there and in the tech industry and we bought an amazing house. Yeah, that was extravagant. That's amazing. Do you know, or can you name something, some sort of joy that you have, some experience that you've had that despite your wealth you could have had that it didn't entail any sort of monetary value? <laughs> I suppose having kids. Um, we've got three kids, two boys and a girl, and you know, of course, you need a little bit of money to bring them up, but um, it's um, that's that's one of the joys, definitely. And you were adamant not to bring them up in France or abroad. You were so adamant to bring them up in Scotland, weren't you? Why? Why was it? Well, it's actually my wife, um, who's from a council house in Ayrshire, who had the brains to say. We don't want to be in Monaco or some tax haven. We want to bring our kids up in Scotland and give them a grounding. And, um, and I think it's the best decision we ever made, to be honest with you. And, but that was down to her, definitely. Lady Hunter has been so instrumental in your success. You speak so openly about that. It's amazing not only to be able to impact lives globally and really make a difference in communities, but also do that with the person you love. How do you reflect on that? It must be, it must be amazing. <laughs> well, 
I guess it was the luckiest day of my life when I met Marine in a pub in Irvine. And because um, I didn't, I didn't have, you know, I was two years into the business, so I was still in my van. Um, although I told her that she could come to my holiday home in Spain, which I didn't have. <laughs> and she brings that up quite a lot. Um, but, you know, being through this journey with someone that you trust, someone that you can share the highs and the lows with is, is everything to me. Absolutely everything. And I don't think I would have been as successful without Marion. Simple as that. That's so touching, so lovely. And something that I hope to have or experience in, in, in my life. Hopefully I have a co-host at one point. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be nice. So before I let you go, I know how busy you are. I don't have you for much longer. Um, what's your What's your biggest fear? My biggest fear? Not not spiders or snakes. We don't get them in, 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 in Asia, that's for sure. <laughs> um, I'm not someone who really, I'm an optimist. Hope, hopefully with a bit of realism chucked in, but um, I don't really fear much. I don't, I don't live in fear. I don't, um, I don't worry too much about things. Um, but, you know, I, I just hope I've got my health to carry on doing what I'm doing. Um, I lost both parents to um, dementia. So I, I hope I'm not going down that, that route anytime soon. But um, I don't. I don't dwell on it. Um, so I just want to stay optimistic. I love that. On this podcast, at the end, I always do some sort of social media promotion for the guest <laughs> accounts. I, I know you don't want any of that. Instead, I know that the listeners are going to be gripped anyway, and they'll find you online if if they need to. Instead of asking that, Tom, how do you want to be remembered? But once I'm gone from this podcast, or once you're gone, what <laughs> what what kind of stamp do you want to leave an individual people like like the stamp that you've left on me? Well, I suppose I I would like to have think that we made a positive difference. I'd like to think that we instilled in others confidence that they can do what they want to do. Um, I would like to think there's something inspirational there. I mean, it's, it's great to meet you and hear that. And coming to your school have had a small effect on you. Um, and um, I guess I just want to know that we made we made our country a better place while we were here. You definitely have you've definitely achieved that over the last decade, if not before. Thank you, Sir Tom, uh, for this amazing entry in my Rolodex of memories. I will never <laughs> forget this moment. It's such a full circle moment. I would never when I first started the podcast, when I didn't even have a name for it or a premise, I would jot down three dream guests, and you were one of them. And if I were to be able to go back and tell that version of David that we did it, I would be so um, so happy and so elated. Well, it's it's great to meet you. I love your story. You keep on doing what you're doing. And um, we look forward to meeting in person not too soon. Thank you, Sir Tom.
I hope you enjoyed this episode with Sir Tom Hunter and you check out Vibey and use code DMAC for 15% off. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the pod. As always, I appreciate you so much.